Welcome to the Marketing Millennials, the No BS Marketing Podcast. I'm Daniel Murray, and join me for unfiltered conversations with the brains behind marketing's coolest companies. The one request I tell our guests, stories or it didn't happen. Get ready to turn the f*** up. What brands do a little bit wrong, in my opinion, is that they start with their own values, but they don't really think about the values of the consumer. And it's actually the other way around, you know? If you think consumer-centric and consumer-first, the first thing that you need to ask yourself, what are those beliefs? What are those values that my consumer has that I need to connect to? Wistia is a complete video platform that lets you make high-quality videos fast right in your browser. Record your face and screen, use AI to write scripts, even add background music. Try Wistia for free at wistia.com backslash millennials. Welcome back to another episode of the Marketing Millennials. Today, I have Oana on the podcast. Welcome to the pod. Thank you so much. I'm so, so excited. I want to first ask you, how did you get into marketing? Could you give a little bit of your journey and then we'll talk about some brand positioning stuff? You know what? It's been so random for me landing into marketing because I've always, you know, growing up, I've seen myself as this more analytical person and like I was the organized type. So if you would have told me when I was little that I was going to end up working for, you know, one of the biggest sportswear brands doing marketing, I would have said you're lying for sure. But then, you know, then there's life. And the journey was pretty uh, interesting because I landed my first job at Disney when I moved to Spain, to Madrid in 2003. And so although that wasn't a marketing job per se, you know, having the chance to start my career at the biggest brand when it comes to storytelling and marketing, it sets you on a on a journey for sure of understanding, you know, how to reach the consumer in a very deep and intimate way. And then officially, um, I started my marketing um, career in um, when I was still in Spain at the fashion brand called Springfield. And I had uh, an international marketing role over there still years ago. But I would say that in general, um, in most of the roles that I've held over time, you know, marketing has always been part of it, Um, although not directly. But, uh, you know, it it was always part of the range of things that I had to to work on. So it's been exciting for me to figure out a bit later in life um, than I wish I would have done, you know, a bit earlier uh, to figure out that I'm actually creative. So it's been fun. It's actually cool that you figured out you're creative later in life. I think it's, I mean, some people are so structured for so long that they don't even get a chance to figure out that they're creative. But I think working for companies that are creative, like working for a Disney and then going into like some cool brands that you've worked with and then now working at Puma, I bet there's a bunch of creativity that's also unlocks like working with good marketers, working at cool companies, working at people doing innovative stuff. So Yeah, you're definitely surrounded by creative people and that's really great. So um, you know, I always like to say that everyone is creative in different ways, but I used to think that creativity meant being a designer, you know? Whereas now I understand that creativity is so much more than that. And obviously working in marketing, you have to be creative in so many different ways so 
I want to go into the topic that you love is brand positioning and how do you think about brand positioning? What is your methodology for thinking about it? So it's funny that you asked that, that you, you'd ask what the methodology is because I haven't really figured it out until a few years ago and I, I was able to actually verbalize it into one word that is unmatched. And this is really the philosophy um, that I've kind of followed throughout my entire career, but I just didn't know how to name it, you know? And what it means really, it's based on this belief that I have that, you know, true good marketing has to be personal. And I also think that the future of marketing is personal because we see how much more effort it takes for brands to be able to connect with consumers nowadays and how much more of the values um, that we both share, you know, brands and consumers are crucial to create that, you know, link and that brand love and that loyalty. So going back to the idea of unmatched, what I think is that, you know, there's so much noise out there in the market that the only way for you to stand out is figure out what you're not, first and foremost, because that's really important. It's not a me too sort of competition. Uh, you know, if you really want to stand out, you need to figure out what your your skill set and your values and your beliefs are, and that will help you start to craft your positioning out there. And so actually the positioning of the brand is the first and most crucial exercise that one needs to go through before thinking even of any sort of marketing strategy or ma marketing tactics. And I think it's a very tough one, I think, because especially for smaller companies that are in the phase of, you know, um, kind of like launching and then scaling, growing, the first thing that they tend to think about is the product. You know, fair enough, they want to sell stuff, but actually the positioning will um, enable you to create the perfect product for your consumers. And the way you talk about it, the way you present it, the way you even craft the product is going to be linked to that positioning. So finding that unmatched positioning to me is the crucial first step before you start thinking of any kind of marketing strategy. You said you go through an exercise of brand positioning. What would like an example of like an exercise you would do to pull out what's needed in the to position a brand? This exercise, I have to say, it works for a personal brand or for any business brand out there. And it literally goes to a few steps. The first step is the story. And everyone has a story. You have a story. I have a story. There's a reason why a brand exists. There's a reason why the founder created it. There was a need that, you know, day zero when they decided to create it. So Tapping into that story is as important as anything else. It's, it's the origin of everything. So being able to verbalize it well and tell that story at scale is one of the most important things that you need to do at the very beginning. And of course, sometimes it's not as um, you know romantic as we want to make it look like in marketing. You know, sometimes it's really just about hey, like I have this product, I want to sell it. But still, you're a person as a founder. You're a person, and you have a personal story to tell. The other thing that I look at is always what are the resources, right, that you have at your disposal? What I call that actually is the zone of genius, you know? What's the zone of genius of your brand? What are those things that only you can do? 
whether you're a person or you're a business, um, I'm sure, you know, everyone has values. Everyone has specific things that other people don't have or don't do. What are those things? Name them and then use them to your favor, you know? Another thing that I think about as well is mindset. And sometimes people call that values, you know, what are the values of the brand? I call it mindset because I think that that's actually how you choose to do business, how you choose to create your product, how you choose to do business, how you choose to, you know, treat your people. It forms the culture and it starts with the mindset. And then it's really the strategy as well. You know, how are you going to implement all those things? So then when you start to kind of connect the dots, it kind of like sets the framework for finding out that middle point, which I call this unmatched brand positioning, which kind of stands for an intersection of skills and things that nobody else has, Uh, you know, kind of all those points that I mentioned before, and then how you then decide to position it and, and communicate it to the world is what then kind of sets you apart from everyone else. You said one of the things that earlier that is being personal, being close to humans, like what are some ways to start doing that with your positioning or with your brand, get closer to humans? Because I think a lot of people say like, oh, I want to humanize my brand or I want to be close to the humans, but it doesn't really, the marketing doesn't feel like that. So how how do you get to that place to like feel personal with your positioning or anything in marketing? The first thing that you need to kind of like realize that it's really just not about you as a brand. It's not about you as a founder. It's not about you as a brand. It's about the consumer. The quicker you realize that it's not about you and the consumer doesn't really care about you until they do, it kind of sets you free for a while, you know, to kind of liberate yourself from this kind of pressure that you have at the beginning and start to kind of really dig deeper into what that consumer is and what they want, what their values are. And oftentimes I think that what brands do a little bit wrong, in my opinion, is that they start with their own values but they don't really think about the values of the consumer. And it's actually the other way around, you know? If you think consumer-centric and consumer-first, the first thing that you need to ask yourself, what are those beliefs? What are those values that my consumer has that I need to connect to? And so it starts from there. You need to be consumer-obsessed, and that's not just a buzzword. You need to understand what their pain points are. What are the things that you're solving for them? What is the transformation that you're providing, you know, through your brand, through your products, through your ambassadors and, you know, your partners and the stories that you tell, what's that thing that the consumer will make it their own, you know? And I was having a conversation the other day with someone that was saying, you know, like the way brands should look at all those ingredients is like you're a chef and, you know, your values and your zone of genius and your products and your guidelines and your logos and all those things are just ingredients and you're the chef, but you're not really preparing the kind of the meal yourself. You're allowing the consumer to take those ingredients to, and to mash them up and create something that has meaning for them. And I think that this kind of mindset shift allows you to understand that in the end, who you need to convince, it's not your internal people, but it's the consumer that actually has to buy the product. And so it becomes personal because when you attach your values to the values of your consumers and you speak to those before to your own, then 
the connection becomes much more personal than before. You know, that's actually such a good point because I think every company I've been at, you just see them preaching of everything is like, my value is this and let's connect like this business thing to this value and this business thing. But they never say like the values that my customers or these are the five things that they care about. Like this, when you're talking to them, think about this. Everybody thinks about like, think about your, our values when you're talking to a customer. And that's such a good point. I've never heard anybody say it like that. And I think that's so smart. And then the, I love that the ingredient analogy it's kind of like you have a cookbook with all these ingredients and then you let the consumer become the chef and then like the, the, they all of them might add another ingredient or they might change the recipe but like the recipe is meant to be changed it's not meant to be stagnant and that's like brand as well brand's not meant to be that recipe that stands with time, even when you like pass it on that recipe that your great grandma had, like it gets changed over years, even though like you don't think so. Cause it's just like, Oh, I added a bit of this or I added a bit of that. And now it's a little different, but it still has that essence of like why it was created in the first place. And you see that with so many brands that re reinvent their OG styles, you know, over time and they take them and reinvent them and do collabs. And so that kind of freshens up the initial idea. But I have to also say, you know, just times are different. You know, in the Don Draper days, it wasn't so difficult. You know, you could have just had your own values, your own ideas, just put it out until in the world. And chances were that probably if the idea was good, it was going to work out. But there weren't, you know, so many channels of communication, there was no internet. There was pretty much just TV and magazines. It was just easier to get to consumers. The difference now is that we have so many, so many different communication channels. We have, you know, social media, we have all the different layers of, of different social media channels. We have so many different ways of expressing ourselves and to engage with the consumers. And consumers' attention is so fragmented among all those different things. You know, they say that basically consumers use five different devices to perform one single task. Can you imagine that? So of course, attention is very fragmented. And this is where the issue kind of arises is that in order to cut through, you just need to be much more detailed oriented in, in how you reach that consumer. And you just need to know them much more intimately than before. I totally agree with the Don Draper. It was easy for Don Draper. I think the one thing that we've missed for a long time, and some brands haven't missed, but I think the Don Draper creativity has been lost in a lot of marketing when we've gone so and to the analytical side that we just forget that to create great creative marketing, we just think like, oh, they're humans have become numbers. It's this targeting that we need to do. They're just this little point on our spreadsheet or report. I think that one thing that Don, that, that era did well is they thought of a grand idea that became a campaign. It wasn't just like, oh, based on the data. And then they talked to that, they did focus groups. They talked to customers. They did things more like that back in the day, which that's what I love about Don Draper era. But if you mix it with today's era, it's, it's like, how could I be, more detailed oriented with that creativity 
amongst like 30 different channels. With Don J. Brown, you had to think, how can I make like, a good TV ad and a good magazine thing out there? So I think it's gotten so much harder to make creativity and brand align on so many different channels. But I think people are still missing that little, a lot of marketing is missing that little creative oomph that used to be in the back day. So I think there's such a good mixture of like what happened before and what's happening now that if a brand that becomes like, I think your little, your thing of saying unmatched. I think when you take creativity and you take analytical and then you take consumer values and you push it all together, it becomes this unmatched brand that you're talking about. Oh, I love that you brought it up because I'm such a big believer in bringing magic back into marketing. I think we are missing so much magic. There is a few brands that do it really well, you know, and they're having fun with their marketing, but it's not really the the common thing. It's almost like, as you say, it's almost like the performance side of it is taking over. And mind you, I'm a huge believer in the, I mean, originally I was like this very analytical person. And so analytics are very important to me. And that is the data that fuels the creativity, but it shouldn't be the only thing, you know, there's, there's an element of the deep emotional understanding that the data cannot give you. And that is your intuition. That is your experience. That is your side conversations um, with people and this is what makes also a good marketer, you know, the fact that they're not just siloed into one thing. And, you know, I think that this is something that I am truly, truly trying to kind of through everything that I'm doing to try to bring back because I think, you know, having started my career at Disney, that's the one thing that I've learned there, that they were not selling products, that they were not selling TV shows. What they were selling was magic. And that was what created the deep, connection with with their consumers until today and i think they're the masters at doing that and there's so much you know to learn from them in that sort of like scope of what creativity actually means so i'm very passionate about bringing the magic back into marketing hey marketers listen up wistia is my best kept secret for creating videos for your business you can record and edit videos right in your browser and even use their AI to write your script. With Wistia, you can record your face and screen for videos like sales pitches or product demos. And the video editor is pretty much foolproof. Seriously, you've got to check it out. Start creating videos for free at wistia.com backslash millennials. That's W-I-S-T-I-A dot com slash millennials. Data is very logical and a lot of creativity comes from illogical places like if like explorers didn't explore and they just did the logical thing of like doing the route that they said they probably wouldn't have explored all the land in the in the world like if people did something illogical that's why in marketing sometimes the data tells you to do this but there might be no data that says hey go in this direction but it could be a good test just because like Sometimes the logical thing works in marketing, and that's where magic comes from. I mean, it takes intuition and it takes smart bets. Like, you still have to be smart with it. You can't be like, I'm going to put 80% of my budget towards this, but you could take little tests. That's what's great about marketing now is like we have so many channels to test 
things out that you don't have to go all in on the campaign. You can just do it in a small segment and see if it works or not. My thing with data, as much as I love it to kind of like go in deep and analyze here and there everything that, you know, like the data can give you. The one thing that I don't think it can give you is the what if. The data can tell you the result of something that happened already. That's what data is. You do something and then you analyze it and then you get the data to tell you how it went. But data cannot give you a new idea. Data cannot tell you, hey, like do this because nobody has done this before and it will work out. And so I think this is where the magic unlocks when you use your intuition and your experience and your creativity to just think out of the box and say, what if, what if I would do this? Like what would happen if I would take this direction instead of that direction? Like what would happen? Where would it take me? And I think that we sometimes forget the data is a, you know, like it, it's it's a co- kind of like accumulation of data points, right? So an analysis is of different things that you've done along the way, and then you see the progress. But it's not the future. It's not necessarily the innovation. So I think this is where, you know, like we need to give ourselves as marketers a little bit of more freedom to test things out a little bit these days. And I think that we would, I think it would pay off in the end. I wanted to get your take on how how do you do brand positioning at such a huge brand? Like it's like Puma's been around for years and years. We're like a startup. You can start with something, you can do the brand positioning, but now you're just like a big company. So how do you think about brand positioning when it comes to like a huge brand like Puma? It's a wonderful experience to do that at a big company because you have so many more things to play with. And a company like ours, a brand like ours, and many other heritage brands have history. And the history is what gives you the brand positioning. Now, mind you, throughout the decades, there's a lot of ups and downs and a lot of, you know, kind of twists and turns throughout the history of a, of a brand, you know, not necessarily ours, but like in general. And so there might be points where maybe you try different things in terms of positioning, they don't work out, and then you have to go back again. Um, in our own, you know, like brand history, we've done that, you know, at, at times where we've been a little bit more uh, lifestyle oriented, sometimes a little bit more sports oriented. And I think a few years ago, we kind of like decided to go back to the roots and it was such a good decision because that is the history of the brand. That's where the brand came from. And, you know, one of the biggest honors that I've had in my career is be able to go into the Puma archive and look into all the amazing things that we've done throughout the years and just kind of like go back to that origin statement of the founder and why he decided to create this or that product you know, and the brand itself. And in this case, it was because he really wanted to support athletes and become better and perform better. And that was the original undertaking that he was taking on with with the first product. So yeah, I mean, it's it's a wonderful experience. It's also very, very hard because you have a lot to lose. As you say, it's not like a startup that you kind of start fresh and there's not a lot for you to lose. Obviously, you have the reputation that you have to consider, you know, you have so many years in the business, you need to kind of make sure that you protect that. But at the same time, it's also there's a lot to play with, because 
uh, you know, like a brand like ours can play in so many different fields. Uh, and so that gives you a lot to work with. Going even further in this like Puma realm, I know you have like done licensing and stuff with other brands and teams and um, sports. How do you decide how to match the like position yourself with these different teams that will match like how Puma wants to be seen in the market? Well, again, it's about going back to kind of those those things that we talked about, especially, you know, the values of each brand. You know, you put them together side by side and you see how they match or they don't match. The teams are very important. You know, the people behind the brands are also important. Like, do we match from a sort of working perspective, uh, infrastructure perspective, you know, the type of products that we need to develop together the mindset and all that, but especially I would say is, is more on the value side of things, you know, do those things match so that, you know, um, it's an authentic partnership. And I think this is where every brand that does any kind of collab from, you know, a, a licensing agreement or any other, you know, lifestyle collab as well is what you try to do is find that partner that will be authentic to your brand, you know, so find that partner that has something in common with you, that shares the values, that shares some of the history, maybe, you know, that have done things in the past that speak to the same kind of consumers that you do. So you you find those matching points and then you try to figure out how they would work together with your own brand. I think also one thing that you said that is very key too is it's not only how you match like externally with the brand and and what they're doing. It's also how you, you can work internally. And I think that's even like some of the bigger battles of like partnerships is do we match it internally as a brand? Are they going to be good to work with? Do they have the same values that we hold? Because that is a, like a good partnership starts with the people that start the partnership. And then it starts leaking out. And people and consumers can feel if there was like tension in the back end. So I think as important as external, the internal battle is also a good a thing to think about when you're going to partner with some other brands as you're doing things. Yeah, and and I mean, I, I've worked in licensing prior to to Puma for many many years in entertainment, right? And if you look at other partnerships and other brands, you see how quickly a partnership can turn and fall if those values are not shared, you know, and, you know, it it doesn't even need to get to the consumer. It just falls flat internally because it just doesn't work out. And so in my experience and in having worked in licensing partnerships in the past as well is it's crucial to, to build that relationship behind the scenes between the teams from the get go. And because that sets the tone of how successful a partnership is. And, you know, there's always ups and downs in a partnership. It's never perfect. There's things that are bound to happen and things that are bound to go wrong. And so when things do go wrong, you just need to be able to have a partner that you can talk to and find solutions with as opposed to, you know, I don't know, pointing the fingers or or whatever. So I do feel that, of course, you know, consumer facing, you know, it is important to share that authenticity with a partner, but it's more important to share those values behind the scenes as well, because everything stems from there. It's probably been the last like five to 
10 years that you see more, probably even less than 10 years, but you see more brands collabing with each other. It's become more of a thing that like Puma times X or this times this brand. Where do you think that's stemmed from? Because I think like more brands were just trying to go off by themselves. They might, they might have like maybe licensed to a team to like use the, or like had like uniform for a team. It was never like the two big brands coming together to make a product. Like where do you think that stem from any collaboration and any partnership comes from the idea of expanding your audience into segments that you don't have access to whether you're doing licensing in or licensing out it's all about expanding that audience you know that reach into segments of of consumers that you don't necessarily interact with Having said that, I think although, you know, um, the intentions are always very good, I think over time we've seen a little bit of a bit too much of collabing out there in the industry, in my opinion, you know, and some collaborations are very, very authentic and they make sense. And some others are just, you can see as a consumer, you can tell that they're just, you know, there for the sake of marketing or whatever. And so in my opinion, I think although, you know, Collaborations are very important, absolutely, and they they do make a difference, and they do create the hype sometimes that you need as a brand. And of course, it it also boosts sales in many ways. It gives you access to new distribution channels and new consumers, and all that is absolutely fantastic. Uh, I think the main point to consider is always the authenticity of that collaboration, because otherwise. It just becomes a bit the norm that everyone is collabing with everyone. And then it kind of starts to lose value. So that's one thing. The other thing that I'm kind of starting to notice is also that I think that's where we need to be a little bit more creative as well. You know, finding ways to collab in areas that we haven't done it before. Like, for example, tech. You know, I loved seeing Coperni um, showing the AI pin in, in their... Uh, you know, in their latest uh, fashion show a few months ago. I think that's a great idea. And you actually, when you think of how technology is embedded in our lives, you know, and is going to be more and more part of our daily routines and kind of like embedded in our uh, sort of like the tissue of, of, of our daily uh, experiences, I think that's an area that I don't see a lot of brands stepping into, and I think it's a good opportunity to start, you know, being a bit more creative in how we look at collaborations as well. Some of the coolest collaborations I've seen are, are where they're with a product you wouldn't think they would be, but it does make sense. Like, like if something goes into tech and it, your product kind of embeds, and then your 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 accessories are part of that. So now you have like you can measure something because you have tech now and it's just I, I love those type of partnerships some of the partnerships where it's like two clothing brands coming together it's like ah we've seen a lot of those lately like could we could we get some more out of the box things going on what is a marketing hill you would die on oh Oh, interesting question. I've never been asked that before. That I would support, you mean, right? That I would like, yeah. Mm. Um, 
the idea that you don't need a big budget to deliver something good. I would definitely die on that hill. Because time and time again, I have experienced, you know, this sort of um, type of limitation, if you will, that some people take it as a limitation. I take it as an opportunity to be creative. And I, I will defend this to the end because I think that the less you have, the more you have to think out of the box. And I think that sometimes, you know, in in prior to the pandemic, we've been a little bit um, spoiled in the way that we've used some of our marketing budgets, you know, especially in big brands. And I think, you know, the pandemic has shown us that um, in, in those very, very um, strange, tough situations, extreme situations, you, you are able to be creative. Um, and so not to say that that has to be the norm always. It's nice to have a nice, you know, budget to work with. I won't lie. Um, but I will always defend the need for creativity, uh, which needs a little bit of um, limit limitation. It's I, I call it like a healthy you know, push. Um, but then it's sort of, I think that's where you create the actual magic. It's also, I think sometimes if you stifle that limitation of budget, like even if someone comes out with an idea that maybe pushes the budget limit, they actually came up with that idea that's worth fighting for more budget to do instead of being like, oh, I'll just go sponsor like, that thing or i'll just do that because i have money to throw away or i'll do this or do that it's like lets people think oh hey let's think of like how we could be created in the spot and think of different ways and then you give people more things to come up with and maybe you go fight for a budget at the end of the and and but that limitation makes you think a little bit harder um than most people think of. Um, that's why you see like some people with the biggest budgets doing pretty boring marketing sometimes because they just, oh, I could just throw, throw money away. Um, so I, I think that's a great point. Uh, lastly is where could people find you, what you're doing, your podcast, all that cool stuff? Uh, well, you know, my favorite territory to play in is LinkedIn. You can find me there almost uh, every day talking about, you know, what interests me, what motivates me, what I believe in. Um, you can also find me on Instagram. The podcast is available on all, um, you know, platforms, also on YouTube. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're kind of like trying to spread the word out there on most uh, every platform. Well, thank you so much. I, I definitely have learned a lot from you and I got some cool ideas from this talk. And I think if people want to learn more, go follow Oana on all platforms. You'll definitely learn a bunch. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you today. Thanks so much for listening. Tune in next week to hear more great insights from marketing's coolest operators. If you haven't already, Please consider subscribing to the Marketing Millennials podcast and giving it a five-star rating. It helps bring more marketers into our community.